0: Episode: Join Emma Gifford Mead as she discusses her curatorial practice and work with the British Council, recorded in March 2014. So, I work as a curator at the British Council in London. I've just got a few images to talk you through sort of the jobs that I've had and kind of what I'm doing now and what our programmes are. When I first started my career in the visual arts, I worked up in Mid Wales in Newtown at Oriel Davis Gallery. Um, This was the first full-time job as a curator that I took on um, in 2004. I was quite lucky joining the gallery at this time, because Oriel Davis had undergone quite significant refurbishment, so they had new gallery spaces and quite an open programme. There were lots of opportunities to get involved with suggesting ideas um, for working with artists combining education and exhibition programs as well. So it was quite a fluid um, time full of lots of opportunities. So during my time at Oriel Davis, I was able to bring in quite a lot of exhibition ideas into the program. And this exhibition, (coughs) Comfort Zones, is one of the first major exhibitions that I curated in my career on my own. And this exhibition involved uh, It was 10 artists who were both from Wales and internationally. And one of the artists who was in the show was Maya Conran, who I think was here a few weeks ago. Um, And it's been really great to sort of keep in touch with Maya and see, see how her career has developed and moved away from the installation work that she was doing for this exhibition. So another thing that we did whilst I was working at Oriel Davis is, this, these are images from the Wales in Venice exhibition that was curated by Karen McKinnon, um, from the originally. original. And in 2005 um, Wales was hosting its second pavilion out in Venice, with Peter Finnimore, Paul Grange and Laura Ford, and Bedway Williams was also the residency artist that year. I was really interested in Venice, didn't know very much about it, still a very young curator. And I volunteered to go out um, to help out with the installation and the opening week in Venice. And so Karen and her team can let me join in and help out. And as part of that we were able to actually bring back that exhibition to Wales. So that was the first time the exhibition, the Venice exhibition had travelled back in 2005. This was another project that we worked on, which was by an artist called Yvonne Buchheim. And this was one of the first commissioning projects um, that we did. It was called A Song for Newtown. And the idea behind this project was that, I don't know if any of you know Newtown, but it's a really small town on the border between England and Wales. So it's got kind of a divided population in terms of language, (coughs) Um, there's not really any higher education offer in the area. There's quite a small community of around 16,000 people. But they have this amazing art gallery. So we were looking for a project, looking for artists to come up with ideas of ways to connect the gallery with the rest of the community. So the artist who we selected to produce a project was Yvonne. And she had this idea called A Song for Newtown and it was all around this idea of collecting up songs which mean something to a community or to a nationality of people. Then she went round the town finding people to sing their songs and recorded them. So this is the lady in the chip shop um, singing one of her songs and then also she worked with a local choir um, in the market to actually commission a new song which was written with all the thoughts and complaints and kind of joyous feelings from the local community as well and then that was put together and performed in the market square and even in such a small town it was quite surprising how many people had never been into the gallery despite the fact that it was next to the main car park, the only car park in town and the bus station and so that was a nice project which sort of crossed over into outreach working and education And this was a solo exhibition that we did with the artist Philippa Lawrence. And this was one of the first times that she was able to explore neon working in in a large-scale space. She had a number of other installations in the first gallery as well, which was more typical of her practice at the time, involving kind of gilded light bulbs and sort of small ephemeral materials, which were spread almost like Cornelia Parker and kind of exploded installations in the gallery. Another project that worked on quite a lot alongside the exhibition programme, Oriel Davis, was this Young Curators project. And Young Curators was an idea which was taken from uh, Young Tate, so the Tate Gallery run all of these programmes for young people in the gallery, allowing them to sort of curate small space exhibitions or things online. And we were really interested in this idea about engaging young people in something and actually developing a project. So our version of young curators brought in teenagers between 14 and 18 and invited them to select works from the Arts Council collection um, up in Longside Gallery because we were focusing mainly on sculpture and video for the exhibition and then they prepared everything from the selection of the artworks right the way through to writing the text, they did a catalogue, did uh, all of the talks for the public um, and put on this show which they called Spoilt Rotten and one of the artists that they included was James Riley who had this major three metre painting in the show. The first year was so successful, we had such a good response both from the young curators that were involved but also from the audiences because again it brought parents and friends into the gallery who previously had never been there they felt it was too easy to select works from a collection so the following year we um, ran an open submission project where we invited artists from all across Wales and the West Midlands um, region to submit works that the, the curators then selected and made into an exhibition so as well as this set programme for teenagers who were interested in the arts We also started to run this programme, which at the time, when I was at Oriel Davis, was called In Focus. And we had really nice gallery spaces and a really strong exhibition programme, but what we didn't really have was the space for people to test up ideas and think about um, maybe trying out something, trying out an artistic work or maybe developing a concept or showing a film or just a written piece about something they wanted to do. So we had this very tiny room um, which is smaller than the lift, uh, which was supposed to be an AV room and <coughs> it was actually just filled with plinths and boxes and lights, all the rest of the things that you usually find in gallery stores. Um, so we opened it up as a programme for emerging artists from Wales and the West Midlands again and it's always, we always had that remit because of where we were on the border and then this programme, initially it was curated by me but I felt it was really important to allow possibly some of our young curators or maybe other young people who wanted to try out curating to actually programme that space. And that, the programme is still going now but it's called Testbed now. I think it's much more established in the gallery programme. So this is another um, installation view from Venice from the Biennale in 2007 and this is Richard Deacon's work and this exhibition was curated by Hannah Firth from Cardiff uh, from Chapter and this was the second time we um, approached Hannah and the Wales at Venice team to ask if we could be the venue to host the Wales at Venice show back in Wales and as you can see from this installation this was um, very site-specific so all of these nails you can see sticking out the walls and the various pieces of ceramic ceramic were made by Richard Deakin directly in response to the brewery space that Wales were using at that time. So it wasn't really something that we could translate back to Wales in a really logical or sensible way. So as we still wanted to have the show, we worked with Richard and with Hannah to select a different range of objects, so we still had the essence of the Wales at Venice show and with the artists but not the same work, um, but still work that hadn't been seen before in Wales. So you can just see Merlin James painting in the background as well there. Following on from Oriol Davis, so I spent three years working in the exhibitions team there. But then I felt ready for a challenge and uh, was still not sensible enough to realise how expensive London was. I um, So excited to move to London and uh, worked at an organisation called Parasol Unit, um, Foundation for Contemporary Art, which is a not-for-profit exhibition space next to Victoria Miro Gallery and their focus was very much on promoting international artists who hadn't been shown in the UK very much before. So it's sort of a, a big change from the focus at Oriel Davis, which was very much on Welsh and border artists with a few international highlights. And um, so this was the first exhibition that I worked on, and this was a major sculpture show by a Japanese artist called Yutaka And um, this was a very large retrospective painting exhibition by um, the abstract American painter Robert Mangold, whose works are in the Tate, but he'd never had a major solo show in the UK, surprisingly. And this is a huge installation by Eylissa Attila, the Finnish artist. And this exhibition had around four major installation works, so she creates these often split-screen video pieces. And this exhibition opened just before her Tate Modern retrospective Mm. in 2009. And then this was another video installation exhibition which we had by the British artist Darren Almond, who, although he's very well-known, I'd come across his work many times. He, again, had never had a major solo show outside of White Cube in the UK. Um, So this was a really interesting project to work on. And this piece, um, the three screens, actually show the railway that's been built between China and Tibet. So it was an extremely political piece um, to show in the gallery. We did get some complaints from the Chinese about this work and because they still don't recognize Tibet so even though actually the focus was on international artists primarily during the two years that I worked there we did have um, three British artists in the program so there was Darren Almond then Mona Hatun this is one of her domestic disturbance works and then we also had a major exhibition with Charles Avery, which we toured to Edinburgh and then also on to uh, Rotterdam, to the Boyman's Museum. So following my time at Parasol Unit, the opportunity came up to work for the British Council. The focus of the British Council, I don't know how many of you would know, we are linked with the Foreign and, Com- Foreign and Commonwealth Office, so part-funded by them, to promote British um, language and culture overseas. So, as an organisation, we have offices in around 110 countries and we have an active arts programme in over 90 of those countries. This exhibition you can see in the photo here is from a gallery in Milan and this was the first exhibition that I worked on which was a broad exhibition of works from the British Council collection, which is a big collection of around 9,000 pieces of art from modern and contemporary British artists. So, the collection is quite rich and varied. Um, we've got most of the well known artists um, in our programme. So, this is from another exhibition, um, also drawn from our collection. This is a show called The Future Demands Your Participation, which was curated for a gallery in China around the time of the Expo. And I don't know if you know, Expo is a kind of big international promotional exhibition where countries a bit like Venice at the Venice Biennale countries will present national pavilions um, to showcase the best of their culture and industrial power so in the run-up to to the expo um, a gallery in Shanghai wanted to host a major show of British contemporary art so this exhibition showed everything from our collection from 1980 through to 2010 um, and this is a shot from the same show. And this piece is a major work in our collection called the Folk Archive, which is um, a large body of work put together by Alan Kane and Jeremy Deller. This work is a perfect sort of piece for our collection because it it was made as an al- an alternative archive of everything to do with British life, but the alternative views of British life. So you've got amateur craftsmen and. There's drawings by prisoners, and um, there's tattoo guns stolen out of prison, and there's motorcycle helmets at the front that have been modified uh, for the owner, so that one's supposed to be a skull. The character in the centre, the arms out, is something called the Burry Man. And this is a costume that is actually used in a small village up in Cumbria where every year they have a sort of festival and a lucky person uh, gets to dress up in this costume and walk through the streets, and you have to have a sip of whiskey in every pub. So by the time they're finished, they're absolutely leathered and covered in sores and scrams and scars from this costume, which is incredibly itchy. But there's lots of other things which are very recognisable from kind of our cultural references. Like on the corner, there's some coffins which are from a joke shop. So they've got things like farts in a can and Mm -hmm. kind of all of those sort of fake silly toys that we recognise but I mean the Chinese technicians couldn't get over themselves, they were fascinated. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of exhibitions that we work on from our collection and the collection's been an ongoing powerful resource for us at the council but we also work directly on other projects with artists. And this um, photograph is from a project that we did with Anish Kapoor in India in 2010. Anish Kapoor is obviously a very famous artist um, of Indian heritage, but he's never had an exhibition in India. So this was the first time that we were able to make this exhibition happen. There are various reasons why an exhibition had never taken place. The size of Anish's works um, is usually the most prohibitive. The cost of getting them out anywhere is very expensive, but also there weren't really any large-scale contemporary art venues in India. This venue, whilst it looks very, very modern, it was actually built about 10 years ago, but it had been built to plans that were around 30 years ago, that had been designed by architects who were still students, and the sort of viability of the plans for an exhibition space hadn't really been tested or thought through properly. So whilst the space itself was, I think, around 20 metres wide, the doorways, which were the only way into the building, were only 1.8 metres wide. So it meant that we, and that was over two doors with a column in the middle. So it meant that basically you couldn't get anything into this building, and the only thing they used it for was um, for schools to meet and have their lunch, otherwise it was completely unused. And the floor loading of the space was basically less than a standard office. So, in order to make this exhibition happen, we had to get funding from the Indian government to basically support the building from underneath, and all of the walls around the outside of the building had to be built inside the framework of the original walls, because things like there's a sort of mirror piece on the wall in the background, that's it's like a sort of oil drum that you look into and it plays with your sense of perception but it means you have to carve into the actual wall so we had to create these kind of very stable structures all around the building and this was in the original, um, I think it used to be the Maharaja's Palace the old um, part of the building At the, so this is the National Gallery of Modern Art in Delhi which is right in the centre of town and these are some of um, Anish's architectural models. So we had kind of all of the really recognisable major sculptures in, in the bigger space on the site. And then we had this more discreet show. So it was a really complete picture of how Anish had developed as an artist and sort of his career from, basically from leaving India when <coughs> he was 18 all the way through to his current practice. And this is a sort of joint show that happened in Mumbai it wasn't complicated enough to have a, a show in one city so we had to show in two cities at the same time. We were very lucky to work with uh, the Listen Gallery who are Anisha's main gallery um, and they supported us and they actually found this space which is in the Bandra Film Studios in Mumbai where they do all of the Bollywood um, filming. So this is one of the standard sets um, and the Canon Um, and the other mirrored works, many of these were shown at the Royal Academy in Anisha's um, big show that had happened just a few months before this show. Another project that's sort of on, another major project for the British Council is the Venice Biennale. So this is um, an image from Mike Nelson's exhibition in 2011 and I suppose following on from the experience in India of rebuilding galleries within galleries and it was quite a neat succession to move on to Mike Nelson's work which if any of you don't know um, he creates these sort of strange authentic looking um, environments but this is actually all fabricated from found materials or or rebuilt to look like um, different environments so this is on the left of the British Pavilion which is a very standard Victorian tea room building which is a little bit like the Serpentine Gallery when it hasn't got this in it. So Mike worked with his team for over three months living and working in Venice to really transform the space. Um, And this is another room in the pavilion. The Venice Biennale, the British pavilion at the Venice Biennale is really the only project that we fully commission, manage, install, Host for the six months and then and then bring back to the UK. So this is a shot from inside the centre of the building. And Mike wanted to create this courtyard, so we actually took off part of the roof and um, to create this space, which was really disorientating for people coming in because everybody was used to a certain experience of the building, and you got completely <coughs> lost wandering around. But then you turned up outside, and you quite couldn't quite figure out what has happened. And this is a shot from Venice in 2013. So this was um, our project with Jeremy Della. Um, And this was a project, or this is a project, called English Magic. As with all the Venice exhibitions, we try to work with the artists very closely to develop an idea, ideally of new work, a new body of work, that they create over a nine to ten month period and then install in the gallery. So one of the things I should say about Mike's work two years before is that because of the nature of, the sort of these little rooms and we had to restrict the flow of visitors through the space so that you weren't in each area with a hundred other people. But trying to control crowds of 30,000 into a queuing system of 40 people at a time is a good test for your patience and stress. And Jeremy was actually one of the people who'd been involved in the queues, the queuing system, in 2011, which on some days were over three hours long. And Jeremy's own experience was that he was so furious by the time he reached the front of the queue, that he didn't even look at the artwork, so he really decided that he wanted to, complete, to create a completely different type of exhibition that was open and accessible at all times and really had a sort of different feel about it. So this was the view of Jeremy's work as you walk up to the pavilion and he's commissioned a large-scale large mural of this bird called a hen harrier, um, which is a very rare bird. The sort of story behind this, as with everything that Jeremy makes in general, is that it has a political history and a sort of um, contentious story behind it. So these birds are incredibly rare, and if you kill them or damage them in any way, you will go to prison for six months and get a large fine. And in 2007, um, there was two of these birds were seen being shot over the Sandringham Estate um, down in Norfolk, and the only people who were shooting that day were Prince Harry and his friend and the gamekeeper. Um, so the shootings were seen by a number of people in the area and reported to the police, um, who did duly investigate, but nobody could ever find these birds. And so no charges were ever brought against the prince or anyone else. So Jeremy kind of started from this point of things that, he was interested in things that were annoying him and he wanted to vent in some way. So this is one of the stories that he picked up on. And he's imagined this bird coming back to life and taking its revenge out on this Range Rover, which is the car that Prince Harry drives. It's also, Jeremy's a very keen cyclist, so he hates Range Rovers generally, so he has double edged anger. So, this is our team out in Venice. You can just see a steel band in the background who'd performed um, at Jeremy's request. And he'd commissioned for three um, archetypal pieces of British music to be performed by a steel band. So, we had a Vaughan Williams classical piece, Voodoo Ray, by a guy called Gerald, which is like a 1980s Acid House anthem, and then a uh, David Bowie, The Man Who Sold the World. Though that music was part of a film that he'd made for the exhibition, but it was also became kind of an anthem for the whole exhibition. This so this is from a more recent project so now I'm moving to a different location again. This is an exhibition called Private Utopia, which is again works from our collection but this time um, selected by four curators from four Japanese museums and one of the things that we try to do with the collection and with the projects that we create is not to to try and step away from this sort of imperialist idea of British culture just being exported and dumped and then returned with no real engagement or interaction so over the last five or six years, we've tried to invite curators from other institutions to come and actually look at the art and interpret it in a different way, from a different cultural perspective. So this is a view of some of the works that have been selected by the Japanese curators. So we've got uh, a and Perry Potts in the foreground, and there's some Simon Starling photographs on the right hand side, and then there's some Cornelia Parker meteorite maps, just on the left hand side. And this is another work which actually doesn't belong to us, but the curators asked if we would be able to lend it to supplement our own collection, um, which is something that we have to do quite a lot as well because our amount of works that we host in the collection are quite small once you start creating exhibitions across the world. Um, so this is a David Shrigley "Undead dog that we selected, or the Japanese selected. And then other projects that we do, so we have, I've shown you quite a lot of major exhibition projects where we work with key partners who have big venues overseas, but we also try and create a range of other projects. So at the moment I'm developing a programme of, two screening programmes of artist film, um, which is an area, so we're constantly buying works for the collection as well as um, showing the collection. And one of the areas that we've been quite bad about um, buying in recent years is artist film. So we're working on a programme now with Film London and the Jarman Award um, to show new works or recent works by artists working in film or moving image. So we have a programme um, which involves artists like Luke Fowler, um, Ed Atkins, Elizabeth Price, Laura Provost. So these are all kind of newer names to the collection and we're hoping to make a purchase hopefully from that but we also now have this programme which will be available to any country um, in the world and it will be free for people to use and to borrow um, and to show in their galleries or venues or education spaces so this is kind of the other end of the scale of our programme so it's still very much representing high quality and sort of the best of British artists but a much more affordable um, level which isn't, isn't reliable and you having the equivalent of sort of the Tate Gallery or the even though And another thing that we've um, been doing much more in the last few years is commissioning um, new films by artists. So as well as having our um, collection, and we have a lot of it online, and we have our exhibitions that travel, um, we really wanted to be able to promote artist work in their own words overseas. So we've commissioned um, quite a number of films over the last year, and these are just two, that's Marcus Coates, caught in the moment, on the left, and uh, Ryan Gander on the right. And these are two artists whose works um, are included in the Japanese collection exhibition that we have. Um, But we've also acquired works by both of them for the collection as well. So, the last thing I wanted to mention is we also run a series of workshops and residencies and more education focused programmes at the Council. So, I was lucky enough to go to Burma last week with a photojournalist. And um, Burma is just opening up as a country now, but we've actually had an office there for, well, on and off for over 50 years. with our English language teaching being the real thing that can kind of drive the office. But the cultural programs are starting to open up now and the government are interested in us doing more cultural work. So this was a photojournalism project in the city of Yangon, which is the old Rangoon and the old capital of Burma. And we brought a female photojournalist called Hazel Thompson out to Yangon and to work with this group of fifteen aspiring photojournalists and over four days she taught them how to tell stories through pictures and they had to each find a person who lived in the city and then follow them, get them to agree to let each of them follow them around for two days and create this photo story about their lives. So creating any project like that anywhere is complicated because um, everybody has a different idea about what storytelling is. and some people want to script their story, others kind of can't find a, a character or don't quite get the concept of the project. But we try and work with people who are really experienced and really open to sort of supporting people to learn. And Hazel was absolutely fantastic at sort of jigging everybody along to get to a stage where they'd all produce a project by the end of the four days. And they're currently editing from around 700 images down to a final photo story of 12 each, which um, the reason for them making a story of 12 images is that that's the standard um, World Press photo, um, standard for photo stories. So as well as learning skills about photojournalism, they're also becoming um, commercially savvy, so they'll be able to present their work in the future to international photojournalism competitions. that's that's it (laughs) which I hope has sort of given you a, a quick snapshot of things that we do thank you